0: Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 8. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. As you're finding your way in God's Word there, um, you'll see over to my left, we have a cross in each of our sanctuaries. We have a cross stationed. Uh, strategically as we uh, lead up to the Easter season you're going to hear something about a share hope with one initiative um, this is something we're going to be doing uh, in these coming weeks uh, to encourage you to think about to pray about somebody in your life today that you know of could be a coworker, it could be a friend it could be a relative somebody in your life that you know today that doesn't know the hope of Christ and what we're going to challenge you to do in the coming days and weeks is to commit yourself to telling them about the hope of Christ. We're specifically asking you to tell them. Pastor Steve Barnes online has created all kinds of resources to use uh, to help you in sharing the gospel, but we want you to tell somebody about Jesus. And then you can invite them to come worship with us on Easter Sunday, but we want you to tell them about Christ And so be thinking about that person on the weekend of April 6th and 7th. We're going to commit ourselves to to somebody and and to sharing the gospel with that individual. So so you be thinking about that. You be praying about it. Well, this morning in in Matthew 17, as we come to this text, it's it's really one of those uh, more mysterious passages in all of God's Word. And there's an aspect of this, if you've read ahead with the transfiguration of Christ, there's there's an aspect of this that's absolutely indescribable and it's in, incredibly difficult to explain. In fact, I thought this week you come to the individual that tells you they know everything about this, be, be worried about that person. Um, it's just one of those texts in God's word uh, that sometimes it, it's better left to just, just stand in awe of what God does here. But I do believe that there is a very clear purpose for this text. Is strategically placed, as we talked about uh, last week with the confession of Peter. Uh, This is kind of the climax of Jesus' public ministry. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you always have the confession of Peter. You always have a discussion on the cost of discipleship, of denying ourselves and taking up our cross. And then we always have the transfiguration. And so the question is, what is this purpose? So uh, before we get into it, I kind of want to give you the the end at the beginning and and discuss the purpose. And as we think about the purpose of this text, we have to consider the context. You remember that Jesus and the disciples they're at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has, has put the question out there, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And you know, we look at that question we probably think it's pretty simplistic and we have obviously the advantage of looking back through the resurrection and the crucifixion. But this was not an easy question. Nowhere has Jesus at this point in his ministry come out and explicitly stated that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. But, but you remember Peter nails it and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus pats him on the back. Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And then you remember Jesus immediately begins to speak plainly with them about how he must suffer and he must be killed. And then he'll rise again on the third day. And when Peter hears this, he doesn't like this. And so he takes Jesus to the side and rebukes him and says, no way, it's not gonna happen like that. You're too good, you're the Messiah. And you remember Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Jesus says, get out of my way. And then you'll remember he tells them, Peter, listen, not only am I going to die, but you're going to die. And anyone who wants to come after me, they must be willing to die also. And remember, these are guys who have given up their lives. They've given up their families to follow Jesus. And I think somewhere in the back of their mind, they're thinking that that eventually this will, will work out to their advantage. Maybe they're thinking that Christ is going to lead a revolt. He'll overthrow the Romans. They're going to have land. And certainly we think this is what Judas was thinking, is that he's going to bring land. We're going to have power. We're going to have money. We're going to have wealth. And all of a sudden, he starts talking about dying. And then you remember, we touched on it briefly, verse 28 in chapter 16. So look back with me just briefly. It says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus has first seemed to give very clear indication with his affirmation of Peter that he is the Messiah. And then he starts telling them about how he's going to die. And then he goes back to telling them, some of you are going to see me coming in my kingdom. And all of this occurs, as best I can tell, I'm not positive, but all, as best I can tell, this occurs about an hour and a half. That's a lot to lay on a group of guys in an hour and a half. You know, they've gone from probably being pretty sure as to who Jesus is to, to thinking they've got it figured out and then back again to being totally confused. Who is this person we're following? Kind of a spiritual roller coaster. And for six days, Scripture is silent. It doesn't tell us what happens. But I can almost guarantee you that no matter what the disciples were doing, in the back of their mind, they're trying to make sense of all this. What does this mean? That he is the Messiah, but he's going to die and he's going to rule and reign. What does all this mean? Well, I think right here in chapter 17, in the transfiguration, we get a fulfillment of what Jesus said in verse 28. Right here in chapter 17, Jesus is going to take three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who are confused, probably a little scared, maybe discouraged, maybe even doubting. And before they die, before they taste death, they're going to get a sneak preview. They're going to see the glory of Christ coming in his kingdom. They're going to get proof positive that Jesus is the king, that he's greater than Moses, and he's greater than Elijah, that he is God, and he is coming back to rule and to judge. In fact, Peter writes about this very incident in 2 Peter 1:16. Please mark it down, but you'll see it on the screen. 2 Peter one sixteen. Peter wrote about this and he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. So Peter tells us right here that the transfiguration in his life and in our lives has a very distinct purpose. That the purpose of the transfiguration is to encourage and to give hope to those who are taking up their cross and denying themselves, that we have the prophetic word made more sure. That as we live in a world that despises Christ, and for that reason will often despise us, and things will get difficult, and there can be times when we grow uh, discouraged, we struggle. We are a people who have a confident hope that Jesus really is God and he is coming back someday to rule. You know, there ought to be no more optimistic people in all the world than Christians. Not because we're better than everybody else. Not because of our health or our bank accounts. But because Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ that we have the prophetic word made more sure. So I hope at the very outset you see the purpose of this, that you and I, as we take up our cross, we deny ourselves and we follow Jesus. And sometimes sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes we struggle, sometimes we're persecuted, and even on occasion we may have to give up our lives we can rest assured that this one we gave up our life for really is king, and he's coming back someday. So let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you that these guys who were struggling to understand who you are and what you were about to accomplish, knowing their weaknesses, you took them on a mountain, and you showed them your glory to give them encouragement so that they would know that they have the prophetic word made more sure. I pray this morning as we study that our hearts would be encouraged as well. And if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, doesn't know the glory of Christ and what it means to follow you, I pray this morning that you would speak to into their heart and draw them to yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says there, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So Jesus leads the disciples up on a mountain for the purpose of prayer. We don't get that here in Matthew, but Luke tells us that they went up for the purpose of prayer. And as they were there on that mountain in prayer, Jesus was transfigured. The Greek word for transfigured is metamorpheo. It's the word from which we get metamorphosis. And it simply means that his appearance was changed. That Peter, James, and John, for a brief moment in time, get a glimpse beneath the humanity of Christ, and they get to see that which only God possesses, which is the glory. That Christ, while he was here on earth, his deity, his divinity, was concealed under the veil of humanity. You remember Isaiah 53 speaking prophetically of Christ. It says of him that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Meaning that there was nothing about Jesus in his physical appearance that would have caused him to stick out among the crowd. If we'd have seen a crowd of people and Jesus were in it, there was nothing about his physical appearance that would have caused us to say, surely that man is the Christ. He was approachable. Christ was a man who, that women would approach, that children weren't afraid to run to, that Gentiles weren't afraid to approach. There was nothing imposing about his physical appearance. So his deity was veiled under the, the, the humanity without ever ceasing to be God. But for this moment, right here on this mountain, Jesus peels back that veil and he gives his guys a sneak preview of his glory. And the best that Peter, James, and John can do to describe it is to say that his face shone like the sun and his garments became as, as white as light. That doesn't mean that his, his clothes were just really clean. This is just the best they can do in human language to describe something that's so far glorious than we could ever even begin to imagine. It would be like you and I seeing a a, a beautiful sunset or or a beautiful sunrise and then trying to describe it to somebody in an email and then multiply that by about a million and that's what Peter, James, and John are trying to describe. And then in verse 3 it says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So in the glory of this moment, all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up And they're talking with Jesus. Now this is interesting. Luke tells us that they were talking with Jesus about his departure. And that word departure is the same word from which we get exodus. You remember the exodus in the Old Testament. God uh, liberating the people of Israel from their bondage to the Egyptians. That he, he led them up to this big body, this chaotic body of water that they would have symbolically thought of as death. And God pushes back the waters and he leads his people through death, and he leads them to the, to the other side to be liberated and freed from the, from the bondage of the Egyptians. Well, right here, Jesus is about to accomplish a greater exodus as he too will go through the waters of death and he will come out safely on the other side through his resurrection and he will liberate his people not from the bondage of the Egyptians, but he will liberate his people from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. He will redeem his people And so think about this. Moses and Elijah right here on this mountain are talking with Jesus about how he will accomplish our redemption through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. I don't know about you, but that's a conversation I would have loved to have sat in on. And some people will ask, well, why? why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, Moses in the Old Testament Symbolically represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. And so together these two men symbolically represent the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. That these two men and their presence there with Jesus are an affirmation that Jesus really is the Christ. That all the Old Testament symbols, all the Old Testament prophecies and promises are right now being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus. You see, not just anyone can be the Messiah. If somebody comes claiming to be Christ, they must perfectly fulfill all the law, and they must also perfectly fulfill every promise in the Old Testament and every prophecy. And so the Old Testament kind of creates a crosshairs that points only to one person, Jesus Christ. And right here, Moses and Elijah are saying This is the Christ. See, it's one thing for me to tell you that Jesus is the Christ. It's one thing for Peter to declare he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Right here, Moses and Elijah are confirming and telling us that Jesus is the Christ. And then look at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. You talk about the understatement of the century. Peter's basically saying, Jesus, let's just stay right here. And don't you love this about Peter? Peter's thinking, you know what? That death and dying stuff, I don't really like that. But this glory stuff up here on the mountain, I really like this. Let's just stay right here. And I can only imagine that our responses would have been very similar to stand in the presence of the glory of Christ, to just say, I don't want to leave. And maybe to a small extent, we've experienced something like that in our own lives. Maybe we've been at a favorite getaway spot or a favorite prayer spot or a vacation spot and we got alone with God and it was just us and his word and and that moment God it felt like Christ was just as close to us as he's ever been and the thought went through our mind can we not just stay right here Jesus do we have to go back to the mortgage payments and the taxes and the kids Lord the kids can we just stay here (laughs) maybe at some point or another we've all had that to a small extent But imagine being Peter and being the physical presence. I don't know about you, but often I've longed, wouldn't it just be good to just sit next to Jesus? Here in the presence of Christ, I want to leave. Well, his next statement, though, gets him in a little bit of a trouble. So so look at the latter portion of verse 4. It says, if you wish... I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. His thought is, well, this is so good. Why don't we just create a little retreat center here on the mountain? We'll just build us a little Moses cabin, Elijah cabin. We'll have a Jesus cabin. We'll just have this little retreat spot. I love what Luke says. Luke says Peter didn't have a clue what he was talking about. (laughs) And Peter's motto was, speak first, engage the mind later. And while I think his motivation and his intention was probably noble, the implication was very dangerous. Because by, by Peter saying, let us make three tabernacles, Peter is implying that where Jesus is, these other two guys need to be there also. He's implying that we need Jesus, and we need the law, and we need the prophets. And probably without intending to do so, he is diminishing the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Christ and Christ alone to save. And God will abide a lot of errors. But he will not abide the diminishing of his son. And so in verse 5, God interrupts. Look at verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's as if God were saying, and if I'm, if I'm wrongfully uh, depicting this scene, but in my mind I almost picture God just saying, would somebody shut him up? Before he digs himself a deeper hole, let's get the cloud in here. And God just cuts him off. And God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And yet I think about how often I get into God's presence just to be with him in his word and I start yapping my mouth more than listening. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. He intends for us to listen twice as much as we talk. To be still, to get in God's presence and to be silent and just know that Jesus is God and this is his word. I believe the voice of God throughout the, throughout the ages to his disciples has constantly been, will you listen to my son? Not just listen, but obey. Listen to my word. Obey him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, it says they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. You see, Peter, James, and John believed, as all the ancients did, that no one could see God and live. You remember, Moses wanted to see God, and God said to him, no one can see me and live. Elijah, you remember, when he comes into the presence of God, says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was essentially saying, I'm about to die. Remember, we get to the New Testament. Zacharias goes into the temple to perform his duty before the Lord, and while he is there, the angel of the Lord appears to him, and it says, fear gripped him. In Luke 2, the shepherds were keeping watch over their flock by night, and suddenly the angel of the Lord was before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. These men simply hear the voice of God and their faces hit the ground it is a fearful thing to stand before the glory of almighty God I hear people all the time say I can't wait when I get to heaven I got all kinds of questions listen to me in that moment I doubt you're going to have many questions I would imagine your response is going to be very similar to Peter, James, and John. I believe we're going to hit our faces in terror at the glory of God. But if we know Jesus, (laughs) I hope and pray our experience is very similar to verse 7. Look at verse 7. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. It's a beautiful picture. These men in the presence of Christ, the sound of God's voice, they've hit their faces on the ground. And Jesus then goes to them. The way I picture this, the way I picture this is they've gone to the ground and Jesus goes down and gets on their level. And I think he grabbed them on the shoulders and said, it's okay, get up. There's no need to be afraid. What a picture of God's grace. You see, you and I, prior to faith in Christ, we were not spiritually neutral. We were following the path of this world and the the path, whether we knew it or not, the path of Satan towards destruction. We were objects of wrath. We were enemies with God. And what did Jesus do? He got down on our level. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. He conquered the grave in his resurrection. And do you know what he does now to sinners who have recognized their sin and they've been humbled in the glory of God? humbled by their sin and the holiness of God. Christ comes to them. And he lifts them up and says, it's okay. There's grace now. There's forgiveness. There's freedom through faith in me. Now I read this. I can't help but think of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that Jesus, although he exists in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Being found in appearance as a man, he was obedient. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him. And Jesus wasn't just giving us a picture for life, but he was giving us a picture of salvation. You and I, we see the glory of God and his holiness, and we know we don't measure up. And in light of his presence, we are humbled. But in our humility, when we go to Christ in faith, Jesus comes to us, and he lifts us up. Well, look at verse 8. In lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Isn't that beautiful? All that is left is Jesus. Paul said that we maintain that man is justified by faith in Christ alone. And these men look up and Moses and Elijah are nowhere to be found. They've disappeared into the greater light of Christ. Because the law was never intended to save anybody. It was intended to show us our need of a Savior and to point us to Christ. Moses spoke of a greater prophet who would lead a greater exodus. Elijah spoke of a greater prophet who would reveal God to us. And so right here, all those shadows, all those symbols are fading in the light of Christ, pointing us to the one hope of salvation, Jesus Christ in Christ alone. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you don't know salvation, can I tell you, God has appointed one man as the only hope for our sinful predicament. You know, we sing a song. It sounds like an old hymn, but it's new or recent, written by the Gettys. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter. My all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, the fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ and Christ alone, I stand. Do you see the purpose of this text? It's God's means of encouraging people like you and me who are daily denying ourselves. Is that an easy thing to do? Is it easy to get up because this denial of ourselves in taking up our cross, it isn't just a one-time thing we do at the moment of salvation. It's getting up every day. I do something that I heard Adrian Rogers did every day. Just to symbolically demonstrate, he would get up and he would put his hands in the air and he'd praise God for who he is and the salvation that he accomplished through Jesus. But then immediately preceding that, he would put out his hands and say, Today I die. I don't want to go where I want to go. I don't want to do what I want to do. Jesus, I want to follow you. Is that easy? And sometimes it takes us down paths that are difficult and hard. Sometimes it forces us to sacrifice things that we'd love to cling to. And every now and then, in dying to ourselves and following Jesus, it might even cost us our life. But this is here to remind us that we have proof positive. That Jesus really is the Christ. He really is king. And he's coming. And he will judge. And he will rule. So you might be here this morning and maybe you're still thinking about Jesus and salvation. And maybe as you see his glory, you're also thinking about what you might have to give up. And we want to be honest with you today. Following Christ will cost you everything. It will cost you to deny yourself and take up your cross. You've got to be willing to die. But I can testify to you today that as Paul said in Philippians, all these things that were gained to me, I now count as loss in the view of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Can I tell you today, whatever you will have to give up to follow Jesus, I can tell you today, it pales in comparison to what you will gain in following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus, who alone is your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you saw fit with these three guys to pull them to the side and let them see the glory of Christ before they tasted death so that we might have the prophetic word made more sure this morning that we would have proof positive. We we can have proof positive by looking at the resurrection We can have proof positive by reading revelation. Or we can simply look to the transfiguration. And so God I pray if anybody here. Is contemplating giving their life to Christ. I pray. That the glory of Jesus would so overwhelm them. That Jesus would not be something they simply add to their life, but today they would run to you and give all of themselves to you to know your salvation. God, for those of us that do know you, I know there's some people in this room this morning, they're going through some struggles. They're clinging to you. They're doing their best to obey you and deny themselves. But the road's gotten hard and things are difficult. And maybe today they're discouraged, maybe even a bit confused. I pray today that they would draw encouragement from your word. We know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.